I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest True Detective's Coldest Case Yet edition. It's Wednesday, January 24th, 2024. On today's show, HBO's anthology series True Detective returns for its fourth season. It's set in the darkest, most arctic part of the United States and northernmost Alaska. It stars Jodie Foster and Kaylee Reese as frenemies, accent on enemies trying to solve a surreal set of murders together. And then... Origin is the new feature film from Ava DuVernay, uh, the director of Selma. It tells the true story of the Pulitzer Prize winning author Isabel Wilkerson's creation of her book, Cast, The Origin of Our Discontents, and stars Ingenue Ellis Taylor. And finally, Pitchfork, a rock snob's digital paradise, uh, became a critical institution, is now being folded into GQ. Some people believe, um, and there's plenty of evidence for it, that it's going to be all but destroyed. We discuss with Slate's own Carl Wilson. Joining us first, though, is Jamel Bowie, the uh, New York Times columnist and Slate alumnus. Hey, Jamel, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey, hey, Steve. We have a rich vein of topics. Shall we go ahead and mine it? We ready? Yes, indeed. All right. Well, I think it's fair to say that the original True Detective, uh, the first installment, season one of the anthology series on HBO, was kind of guy-guy TV to the core. Not that it didn't have plenty of non-guy-guy fans. Uh, I was one of them. But it was a buddy cop show, basically, featuring female corpses, supernatural elements, and a lot of sub-Nietzschean philosophizing. Its fourth season is part homage and part antidote to that. Many of the same elements uh, are in this one, only now there's a new showrunner, a woman, a Mexican director, Isa Lopez. This one takes place in northernmost Alaska, just as night, like permanent night, months and months of the sunless season begins to descend. And just as eight researchers in an Arctic station go mysteriously missing, Jodie Foster stars as Elizabeth Danvers, the police chief of a fictional small town called Ennis. It's a frontier town densely webbed with melodramas and intrigues and gossip, a place uh, we're led to believe also where the living and the dead mingle promiscuously. In the clip, you're going to hear the voices of Foster and Kaylee Reese. Reese's character is a police trooper named Evangeline Navarro, and she thinks there's a connection between this new case and an older case that went unsolved. She's going to butt heads with Foster's character, who's in charge of the investigation. Let's have a listen. What do you want? This tattoo was on Annie's body. So? It was on the forehead of one of your guys. Maybe. So what? So what? It's the same case. We can work together and figure out Annie. (laughs) No. I'm not working with you again, ever. You think I want to work with you? I do, actually. Yeah. Take a look in the mirror, Liz. No one can stand you. Except for that poor kid prior. Will you be breaking his heart real soon? Get out of my scene. Go on. Fuck off. All right, Dana, let me start with you. I mean, there's uh, a lot to unpack here. Um, starting with Foster, who, as I understand it, hasn't been the lead in a television show since the 1970s. Uh, Here she plays someone that she herself has described as a kind of nightmare Karen figure, very hard to like, uh, investigating a, uh, to give nothing away, a very bizarre, uh, very surreal crime. What did you make of this mix? I mean, I'm excited this is on the air. This show isn't perfect, but I feel like it's the kind of show I needed right now, which is sort of a throwback kind of show. I liked what Laura Miller wrote for Slate about this season, which she really enjoyed, uh, saying that looking back to 2014 and the first season of True Detective, that Matthew McConaughey, Woody Harrelson season, which was, as I remember, you know, all the topic of conversation, the kind of thing people would be unpacking for days afterward and waiting for the next Sunday installment in a very old school TV way, that it it probably doesn't really hold up to scrutiny now, but it was in such a different landscape at the time that it felt really artful and inventive. But all the things about it that felt so artful and inventive, I feel like, have since come under closer scrutiny, including, you know, two white guys driving around talking about a bunch of dead girls. And, you know, just a lot about that show's gender and racial politics were just of its time in a way that this 
season has um, has reinvented, I think, pretty successfully. It's The setting is the best thing about this show, first of all. Uh, from what I've seen so far, Ennis, Alaska is just such a realer and more specific feeling place than the, the vague um, southern town that the first season took place in, which, as Laura points out, was more just a sort of backdrop for two guys to drive around in a car talking about crime. But Ennis really feels like a specific place. I feel like even just two episodes into the show, I know, you know, who runs the local bar and what kind of place it is and, you know, how the native inhabitants relate to the white inhabitants and uh, and what the descending of darkness for months on end means to the kind of general fabric of the town. So I love Ennis. And I love seeing Jodie Foster again. She's having this great comeback moment. Just this morning the, of the day we're talking, she was nominated for a Best Supporting Actress Oscar for Nyad. And uh, as someone who grew up with Jodie Foster, just always, always on on screens around me, um, it's really fun to see her back playing a big, juicy, challenging cable antihero <laughs> of, of this style. So... I'm pretty much all in at this point, and uh, maybe some doubts will creep in later, but it's only six episodes long, and uh, I'm planning on following the whole thing. All right, Dana's all in. Uh, Jamil, where are you on this one? I loved it. The closing scene of the first episode was not just legitimately shocking to me. Like, it's just something I was not expecting. Oh, yeah. It's top-tier horror. (laughs) And what I like about this version of True Detective, this particular iteration is and i should say i only ever watched the first season the first anthology season the other two didn't really interest me very much but the first one had this really strong sense of cosmic dread which is i think which made it work that you're sort of it's not just a conspiracy but there's something like troubling on an existential level happening in the surroundings very lovecraftian and Mm -hmm. this season i think takes those elements and turns them up even further that there's like this sense of love crafty and terror people are witnessing or experiencing things that feel incomprehensible that i find really appealing that's the kind of horror that i like um that you know the non-euclidean geometry drives you insane kind of horror mm. and so i i'm really taken with this this is just like exactly up my alley it's a pleasure seeing jodie foster uh in in something i've not seen her in something in a, in a little while and um you're, she's reminding you why she's one of the best and um callie reese is terrific uh, i i've not seen her in anything before uh, but every time she's on screen i i kind of can't take my eyes off of her and so yeah, I'm, I'm like all in. I, I I don't watch a lot of TV these days. I'm I'm gonna watch all of this True Detective. Uh, I am all in. I'm I'm right behind both of you. I am so taken with this. It's not as you say, Dana, perfect, uh, but something about the descent of this omnipresent, you know, unyielding darkness on this community feels really real in the sense that it sends people into a nocturnal mental space in which you're probably prone to seeing the dead and you can be agnostic with such a premise as to whether the dead are actually present in some supernatural sense or only present to mind that works great um foster i love that she's kind of clarice starling reborn that kind of set rictus like you know face trying to fathom something very weird and very evil harkens back to silence of the lambs and peak Jodie Foster with some Karen thrown in. She's she's either borderline or outright racist, or it's implied that there's a sense of hierarchy between the, you know, indigenous population of the town and, and the white European population of the town. Um, and the interaction between her and Kaylee Reese is remarkable. And Kaylee Reese is just seething with all kinds of, semi-hidden rages <laughs> and, and entirely earned resentments and and she's badass about it too it's like she's they're, they're they are a great buddy pairing um let me put it that way and then as you say the sort of vi- the set of images that end episode one n- no spoilers like it, it, <laughs> i mean it's just like a, a delacroix painting in some sense you know what is it death of sardanapolis or something i'm forgetting which one there's one on a life raft i'm getting all my you know sort of canonical paintings mixed up but it has that kind of uh indelible quality and uh uh, dana the director has said that you know 
John Carpenter's The Thing, um, Kubrick, uh, The Shining, um, Nostromo. There's there is this element that's that's just heavily in this in this show that gives it its um, weird, eerie depth of. Um, of feeling. Yeah, it's wintry horror, right? It definitely yeah. falls into that category of, you know, people isolated in a in a very cold place who who yeah, who who get into some sort of state that might be supernatural or it might just be that they're seeing things in the snow. I mean, since, since you mentioned seeing the dead, I just have to shout out Fiona Shaw who plays the secondary character who we're used to seeing, right? The stately British Fiona Shaw as playing these kind of um, starchy upper class British characters. She's great. I always love Fiona Shaw and everything. But here she's this amazing kind of stoner hermit who lives off in a cabin and has a specific talent for you know getting messages from from the dead. Which there's just a wonderful scene in in the second episode of the season where she sits around getting high with Kaylee Reese and talking about her experience of of seeing ghosts in the snow. And it's a Fiona Shaw I've never seen before. The thing about the dead is that some of them come and visit because they miss you. Some come because they need to tell you something that you need to hear. And some of them just want to take you with them. I was going to add just to the, the reference to Carpenter. I, I, there, I think not just the thing, but a, a lesser scene Carpenter, the fog. Um, yeah. The fog uh, being a carpenter were kind of the not like the enemy of the movie but kind of the physical phenomena that's like structuring the story is this like you know heavy fog that is covering this coastal town um that makes it impossible to kind of really perceive what's out there and there's very much i think a lot of that in in this true detective kind of not just the the snow and the darkness um, but kind of the, the the fog of the town, as it were, sort of like the the, the spiritual energy as a kind of fog that makes it hard to see and what really is in front of you. And that sounds to me, I mean, when, if, if somebody had told me, and the fog is a character and the, the atmosphere is so oppressive, I would think that it would be something really overdetermined and kind of hokey. But I feel like the show skillfully evokes that atmosphere without kind of hammering you on the head with... Um, with metaphors about it. It just places you there. And only a couple hours in, it already feels like a real place. I think the show's terrific. I'm glad you're all in with me. Yeah, here, here. Um, B- back to HBO Sunday nights of the early <laughs> 2000s. <laughs> Throwback. All right. Well, it's uh, True Detective season four. It's on HBO. Uh, a couple episodes are out. Another one's about to drop. Uh, check it out. Let us know what you think. Let's Let's move on. All right. Before we go any further, this is the moment in our podcast we discuss business. Dana, what uh, what do we have this week? Steve, all we have this week is to tell listeners about our Slate Plus segment. This week, at your suggestion, actually, we're going to be talking about The Sopranos, which turns 25 years old, uh, not just this year, but this month. And uh, it's been talked about a lot in the media over the past few weeks because, obviously, it's a groundbreaking TV show that changed the entire medium. So for our Slate Plus segment, we will talk about that show's legacy, our own memories of it, and whether or not we are still living in the era of The Sopranos on TV. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can hear that conversation at the end of this show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. Why would you do that? Well, you get bonus content like the segment I just described, which many other shows offer as well. You get unlimited access to all of the writing and all of the podcasting on slate.com. And you never have to hear me read an ad again. These memberships are really important to help keep Slate going. So please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. All right, on with the show. All right, well, the feature film origin is the creation of the filmmaker Avid DuVernay, the director, of course, of Selma, 13th, uh, and A Wrinkle in Time. This is, I will just say it up front, a hard film to describe. It's a feature film about the writing of a book, uh, the book in question is Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents by uh, the journalist Isabel Wilkerson. But it's also part grief drama. It's a travelogue. Uh, it's filled with historical reenactments. Uh, and I think it's fair to say a polemical essay. Wilkerson's book, by way of context, had a central argument that Cast is in some ways more analytically powerful, more analytically satisfying way to think about formalized systems of subordination and domination than races, which, of course, is a controversial claim. We'll get into it. 
by way of making that argument, she knit together Jim Crow in the United States, the Nazi Aryan race laws in Nazi Germany, and the caste system in India in a kind of uh, grand theory of uh, exploitation and othering. The film stars Anjanou Ellis Taylor as Wilkerson. Uh, it also stars John Bernthal, uh, Vera Farmiga. There was a brief appearance by Nick Offerman and uh, Blair Underwood. Anyway, in the clip, you'll hear Ellis Taylor as uh, Isabel talking to a friend about an argument that she's building for her new book. Let's listen. The Nazi blueprint for the extermination of millions of people was directly patterned after America's enslavement and segregation of black people. America taught the Nazis. Caste in America, in Germany. It functions the same. The outcomes may be different, like Sabine said, but it is the same. I think that the caste system in India, I, I, I think that there is a connection there too, but the interconnectedness. That is my point. That is what I'm saying. Jamel, let me let me start with you. I mean, sort of regardless of how much one buys the argument behind it, and regardless of how much one might be taken by the movie in part or in whole, there's nothing easy going on here. This is to carry off an argument like that as an argument is itself analytically complex. It's very provocative. And then to dramatize it as a film is <laughs> quite the assignment. Um, maybe because you've read the book, describe the relationship of the book to the film and how convincing you find the argument itself. The film is as much sort of like memoir as it is this argument, I'd say quite didactic argument, um, about the relationship of caste to various systems of hierarchy. Um, the book is not does not have as much of the memoir. There are personal anecdotes that come in as Wilkerson makes her argument, but the book is much more traditional in its structure. It's not um, the kind of combination memoir travelogue argument that the film is. And I'll say to the film's credit, this is like a, a very interesting way of trying to adapt a nonfiction work, of trying to tie in the personal experience of the author with the argument of the book and so on and so forth. I'm not sure that it works cinematically, um, but uh, you know you got to admire the attempt to do something very new. As for the argument, I don't find it convincing. I didn't find it convincing when I read the book. I don't find it convincing in the film. And the scene um, that we heard, which itself is riffing off of a previous scene, um, to my mind, the criticism that a char the character in the previous scene makes that, you know, for all of these similarities between, you know, Jim Crow racism uh, or American slavery and Nazi anti-Semitism, for all of the very real similarities, for all the very real connections, especially between um, Jim Crow laws and Nazi racial laws, um, it does actually matter, like analytically, that the point of American style racism was the control and exploitation and expropriation of labor that these were, this was primarily a system of labor, um, whereas Nazi anti-Semitism was, it was like the the end was um, extermination, and that's <laughs> that's like not that's not a thing you can brush off, right? Because if the argument of the book and of the film is that caste is this trans historical um, deep structure of human societies that manifests its way manifests itself differently in different societies, but has it has the same fundamental logic um, throughout, then a logic that ends with, in the case of American racism, we have a system of labor control that depends on the reproduction of the laborers. And in Nazi Germany, we have a system that depends on the extermination of the <laughs> of the lower caste. And in Wilkerson's language, that's a fundamental difference. And that can't be brushed away. And my problem just with the the argument, since this is this, as you mentioned, Stephen, this is um this film is uh, it's an argument. Um, the pro my problem with the argument is that it brushes off that critique and doesn't really attempt to engage with it. Um, it kind of the book and the film pivots to India uh, and says the caste system in India is like thousands of years old, 
and um, it's described means very stark and flattened terms, and the Indian caste system is is quite stark. But here again, we have uh, a system that isn't as rigid and unchanging as it's presented. Um, and that many Indian scholars uh, in their critiques of this book and in other work have pointed out that the Indian caste system that we think of as being this completely rigid and unbending thing owes as much to the subcontinent's encounters in the 18th and 19th century with the British Empire as it does these ancient religious traditions and occupational specializations that kind of like meld together. Um and my, you know, my my big critique of this book and of this movie, kind of by extension, is that if everything is cast, then nothing is right. That like, if we're going to obliterate the specific conditions under which these systems emerge, if we're going to just ignore all of that and say, oh, this is all kind of the same thing, because of what are ultimately somewhat superficial similarities between the three, then like, I guess everything is cast. And if everything is cast, then what does it explain? Right. You're sort of both extrapolating this anthropological constant, right? This sort of, you know, algebraic variable across otherwise seemingly very distinct societies in order to what exactly, right? Because then you're left with, well, how do you eradicate that? And how utopian right. a gesture is required in order to move human beings beyond a thing that we all have in common and seems transhistorical. Um Anyway, and, but and not, I, and and not, to, not to monopolize this too much, but I'll say that in the book, the solution is a change of heart and consciousness. And that to me is the giveaway that this is just like, uh, this is mean, this is sort of like not a serious method of analysis. And I'll, the last thing I'll say is that Wilkerson, and she kind of, the, the movie kind of alludes to this, but the cast thesis first pops up in the 30s and 40s. Like it's not a new thing. Yeah. And the critique I'm making is the exact critique that was made at the time. Yeah, fair enough. Dana, endogamy is at the heart of the argument that unlike things must not crossbreed, that marriage between tribes is forbidden. Um, one thing I do find genuinely interesting about the movie is that it's purposefully non-endogamous, right? It's like taking all of these genres and confusing them together in ways that are challenging to the viewer, but at least original to the to the film. What do you make of it as a film? I mean, credit to Ava DuVernay for du making a big swing, <laughs> making a movie that is not commercially, <laughs> like especially swing. appealing. It's hard to imagine this being like a date movie. It didn't get any Oscar nominations. She's not interested in, you know, necessarily making this into a blockbuster, and that's commendable. But this movie does not work on the level of a movie for someone who's not familiar with the book at all. <laughs> like, I, I, there were so many long movies last year, right? It was really the year of long movies, and everyone was sort of saying that at the end of the, the year. This movie, which is two hours and 20 minutes long-ish but you know not even the length of I don't know uh, Anatomy of a Fall or another of the sort of long hits of last year feels so much longer that it feels like it, it could be one of like a freestanding TV season or something because it goes everywhere I mean it actually the, the best part of it I would say is maybe the first half hour which is just about Isabel Wilkerson getting the idea for the book about some tragedies in her personal life that kind of you know launched her on the journey of doing the research I think the first half hour sort of feels like it's going to be a movie about someone having a big idea and trying to execute it. But then as soon as the movie becomes about trying to reenact historical situations um, in which, you know, this big idea is being illustrated, it just really felt to me like almost History Channel level recreations yeah. in which essentially Anjanou Ellis-Taylor as Isabel Wilkerson is, is narrating ideas from the book while those exact things are being acted out. That's the History Channel kind of factor, right? That she'll be saying like, and the Nazis had a meeting in which they discussed, you know, American racial law as a model for the Third Reich. And then you will just see unnamed, unidentified characters who are Nazis sitting in a room doing that exact thing. So there's like this very one-to-one -one kind of um, dullness of the reenactments. But mainly, I just feel like the movie is so scattered and sprawling that by the time she goes to India, the Isabel Wilkerson character goes to India. I mean, it's you know, nearly, I don't know, it's like two hours into a two hour and 20 minute movie and a whole new culture and a whole new history that's thousands of years long is being folded in. And it just feels like it's doing a disservice to all of the cultures being illustrated, but also just to, to the watcher's 
intelligence and, and understanding. Um, one more thing I wanted to say in response to Jamel was that, shockingly, precisely the criticism that that we are making and that was apparently made of her book when it came out in 2020 is made by a character in the movie, uh, right? There's this scene where she's in Berlin, she's researching the Nazis, she has dinner with a cu- what seems to be a couple, I think a man and wife who are white Germans and with an American, a fellow American and then there's this moment in which the German woman in the couple makes this critique of the idea that's very similar to the one Jamel just made and that I guess many critics did when the book came out. American slavery is rooted in subjugation, dominating blacks for the purposes of capitalism, using bodies and labor for profit. But for the Jews during the Holocaust, the end goal was not subjugation. It was extermination. Kill them all. And it just seems disingenuous to me the way the movie glosses that over. And also by putting it in the mouth of this, you know, white German woman sort of makes it seem as if it's a racist comment. Right. There, there, there are this, the critique that I'm expressing. And I also, you know, I flipped through the book again. I, I looked up, I looked up more of the reviews. This was, you know, White scholars made this critique, but like black scholars made this critique, and Indian scholars made this critique. It's like it's not. This isn't this. This isn't the case of uh, you know, as it's presented in the movie. I think um, white people not wanting to um, own up to the reality here. It's like no, this is like a serious, you know, conceptual critique being made. One thing that I think that maybe is not coming across in our comments as much. Is um you know the movie is a, a good deal of it maybe even like close to like a third of it are these like historical recreations some of them better than others but one of them that I found disgraceful <laughs> I found really distasteful and I did not like and really soured me uh, probably more than um you know if if they weren't there I probably would have had a slightly less harsh view of the film is um a, there's a the movie begins with a recreation of the Trayvon Martin's encounter with George Zimmerman. So it begins with that. And I'm not spoiling anything to say that it sort of ends with Trayvon Martin's force ghost, like, you know, smiling at Wilkerson. And it's just sort of like, what are we doing? What are we doing? Oh, I, I agree. The Trayvon, Trayvon bit was, was painful. I mean, at the beginning, it made some sense because I guess it was her being offered that story um, to cover that story as a journalist and rejecting it that got her going on the book. But ghost Trayvon at the end and all the ghosts are just, to me, that really takes it into a realm of bad taste that is not forgivable. I think we're, as a panel, relatively unified in our critical judgment of this movie. Um, I wonder, Jamel, if you could speak a little bit to the supporting performances, which I think struck all of us as quite strong. Yes, I, it's it's funny. The thing I actually like most about this movie is the kind of domestic drama part. I thought John Bernthal was fantastic. I thought he was really convincing and empathetic. And I don't know, I really I really enjoyed his time on the screen. Um, I thought Nisi Nash was terrific as well. Sort of the interaction um, of Wilkerson with her family, I found very compelling to watch. And those were the times when I was sort of most interested in, and um, compelled by the movie. Um, and then when we move to kind of like the argument, I'm sort of, you know, you know, my thoughts on that already. All right. A very complex bundle of ambitions uh, and aspects to this movie. It is hard to critically sum up succinctly. Um, if you do check it out and you disagree with us, we'd love to hear from you. Shoot us an email. All right, let's move on. All right. Well, the music review website Pitchfork was, depending on who you asked, uh, either a lyrically written, very thoughtful, uh, massive encyclopedia of popular music criticism or a rock snob's paradise. That was an ongoing debate for its entire history, which may now be coming to a close or may not. It's been absorbed onto GQ via Condé Nast, as I understand it, by way of beginning the process of cutting it down to the bone, i.e. it's about to have the same dubious fate as, for example, Sports Illustrated and various other uh, legacy magazines or websites. We're joined by Slate's own music critic, Carl Wilson, to discuss you know, what Pitchfork was, what it meant, and what losing it might mean. Carl, welcome to the, uh, welcome to the show. So happy to be here. Talk a little bit about 
what this news meant to you when you heard it, and from there about the larger implications of it. Yeah, so just some background for people who may or may not know. Pitchfork launched in the mid-90s, in 1996, um, basically as a blog uh, run by Ryan Schreiber, who was kind of newly out of high school, working as a clerk at a record store, and started a highly opinionated uh, website for him and, and a few friends to review indie rock albums for the most part, and quite quickly grew into something else. And by the 2000s, it was... Um, arguably the most influential voice in music criticism, um, and especially in indie rock criticism, but also a highly contentious one, partly because it um, implemented the scoring system of ranking albums, not only out of 10, but out of 10 to uh, the nearest decimal place. Um, so so you could go from 0.0, .0 to 10.0, I guess, as um, as your ratings, and, and that was really easy, easy clickbait, um, and caused a lot of attention to be drawn. Um, but something happened along the way. It also kind of grew up from a very snarky, very indie boy-focused website um, that um, made its name kind of popularizing bands like Broken Social Scene and Arcade Fire and Animal Collective and the likes, and gradually started maturing as it expanded its writer's base and um, moved away from an all-white male uh, writing writing staff um, to something that kind of covered music much more broadly into the 2010s, paralleling, I think, um, a transition that was happening in music itself, where that indie world was less and less of a um, walled compound and, and started interacting more with the pop world at large, and certainly much more with black music. Um, to the point that in 2015, Condé Nast bought them out, um, saying that they wanted to take advantage of Pitchfork's audience of, quote, passionate millennial males. Um, <laughs> and they've gone through a series of other editors, oh, says Schreiber, and most recently, uh, Pusha Patel, a young woman of color who's run it since 2018, and really even more so um, presided over a diversification um, and a deepening critical voice. And it really, I would say for the past half decade and more, has been a model of what good music criticism can be from its news and investigative reporting to its ongoing, you know, really widespread um, covering the waterfront reviews section. Um, and then it feels like they're being punished for all of that growth because Condé Nast looked at it and said, that's not what we were looking for, and decided to fold Pitchfork this week under um, the imprint of GQ. It's very unclear what that's going to mean now, but basically I think they're going to be GQ's music vertical in some sense, keeping the brand name Pitchfork, keeping uh, the Pitchfork Live Music Festival, uh, which of course is a cash cow, but laying off most of the senior staff. Um, I think the top eight people are gone aside from Jeremy Larson, the review editor, and Pooja Patel herself is gone. Um, pe some people who've worked there for 10, 15 years. And, um, and we really don't know what the fate of Pitchfork is going to be from here out. Um, so far, it looks like a sort of diminished version of business as usual, but there's no way to really know until we watch it happen. But the, there's, it really contributed to an overwhelming feeling of doom in music journalism recently, you know, which has seen waves after wave of this kind of cutbacks for a decade, but particularly in the past couple of years, and, and really making people wonder about the future of, of the art of music criticism. And, and I think we can broaden that out to criticism in general. Yeah, Carl, it really struck me last week. Last week was just such a week of, of mourning for anybody who works in, in journalism and criticism. And it seemed like so many hits were coming at once that, you know, this Pitchfork news broke. And I think the next day it was Sports Illustrated folding. And, you know, me mourning those two things may seem odd because I'm sure I've clicked on Sports Illustrated maybe once in my life and Pitchfork maybe half a dozen times. But it's not really about individual readership. It's the idea that there are specialized publications where journalists who are experts in something can get paid to make a living and do work. And the disappearance of that is just, it's happening so rapidly in every 
field of human knowledge that it really starts to feel like the Library of Alexandria is burning. And uh, something that you gave us to read by by Laura Snapes, the music critic, who is, among other places, freelanced for Pitchfork, really struck me in that she was talking about the amount of, of editorial work that went into her pieces on Pitchfork, that when she wrote a profile or something for that site, it would have two editors, a copy editor, a fact checker, you know, that she would have time and space and attention to to develop her writing into something worthwhile. And uh, and I think if you don't work within journalism over the past decade, you don't see the extent to which that's disappearing all around us. But the evidence is there that it's disappearing all around us, not only in sites folding right and left, but in there being so much junk, so much bad writing online that isn't fact-checked and isn't copy-edited, and not to mention, you know, AI sludge starting to intrude on everything. So maybe this isn't so much a question as a giant wringing of hands, <laughs> but uh, but I just feel a lot of solidarity with journalists, even who work in, in fields that, you know, have nothing to do with my own writing. Yeah, I mean, I think that people tend to think, well, so what if there are still critics, you know, publishing newsletters and still out there on on social media and still, you know, although, again, this is dwindled and dwindled, but still having, you know, a music critic working for a general interest magazine or newspaper. But I think there's a real difference in the sense of a conversation in the sense of the sense of there being a center of the action, a sense of there being communities out there that you can be a part of. And the idea that particular subject matters are worth drilling down on and worth thinking about in in longer form, more reflective ways, rather than just being part of the news of the day. Um, And that, that seems to me, Pitchfork has been the most viable version of that in, in music media. And, you know, somebody at Condé Nast um, kind of leaked in a way on Twitter uh, last week that it's still in terms of daily readership, the best read of Condé Nast websites, which really makes you think, what is the business thinking here? And, you know, I think it, it really comes down to, you know, on the one hand, what do what is easy to sell to big advertisers and what sounds good to investors. And Robin James, uh, a music writer who does who does her own newsletter and and writes a lot about economics and music from sort of a Marxist philosophical perspective, brought up the fact that this is kind of, this kind of let's reconsolidate the male music audience as a thing that we can sell to investors is really, you know, a kind of a fiction. I would say, you know, there are as many women now, especially reading and talking and writing about music as there are men, and, and you know, certainly to a greater degree than ever before. And Pitchfork has been helpful with that, you know, surprisingly, given its kind of frat boyish seeming origins. Um, and reconsolidating that image of who's allowed in and who's important in that conversation is a really unfortunate turn for things to take. And and again, I think comes from a much more like this quarter, next quarter business head thinking than from any real thought about what's going to be successful with readers over the long term. I'm, wonder, I'm, I'm sort of wondering what, what you think will be the impact on listeners of music. Uh, I know, speaking from my own personal history, I Pitchfork was like really important to me as like a, a 17, 18, 19-year-old, very much interested in music and interested in indie music and um, interested in like what is new and, and interesting and and exciting. And I don't, I don't, I can't imagine being that age in this moment and even knowing where to start to discover anything, to discover anything that I would have never discovered on my own. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the big question that people are asking at the moment. And part of the reason we're asking it is that, you know, the thing that's putatively replacing the long time kind of way that music talk has circulated among fans and professional critics as kind of a back and forth is algorithmic recommendation, right? You know, it's playlists on Spotify or whatever streaming service you um, subscribe to and the kind of assumptions that it has programmed into it about what you will like if you like the thing that you just played. Um, 
I think that all of us have experienced how imperfect that system is, and it, it tends by its nature to lean towards a sort of lowest common denominator um, rather than really thoughtfully paying attention to what the features of the things that you seem to be interested in are and recommend them to you. I mean, they could get better, but the the biggest problem with that to me is that it lacks any cultural context. You know, the the algorithms don't care particularly what world, what scene, what what community those musics come from and why they were made and the and the kinds of things that thoughtful criticism can bring you about the history of what you're listening to and therefore what it means and therefore I think what you can imagine your relationship to being being to it and and in some ways the kinds of things that you can be part of or create out of it all of that is missing in in the streaming ecosystem as we currently have it and you know, I mean, I would, I also want to say there are still publications out there. You know, you can look at Stereo Gum and Complex and Fader, and Rolling Stone is still out there, and Bandcamp, and you know, the the streaming independent site that also publishes music journalism, though it's also been um, through some ownership changes that put its future in jeopardy. But yeah, I think that's we're looking at this question of you know, can you get, can you uh, get everything rich about music or any kind of culture from TikTok videos and YouTube. Maybe there are ways that we can. I think we shouldn't rule those things out. But the right writerly version of it supplies a sense of minds touching in different ways that I don't know if there's another substitute for. Yeah, that's beautifully put, Carl. And, you know, your criticism has made this interesting balance between the individual sensibility of the critic and a conception of a, let's call it semi-objective fact of social power in some sense. Is this a moment to, to step back and say, yes, 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 Bourdieu, yes, 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 you know, <laughs> uh, the, the use of uh, taste distinctions to enforce various hierarchies? Um and yet there is something to the individual sensibility of the lone writer confronting something with his or her or their own ears and communicating to the lone reader something you know somewhat intimate and none uh, uh, surely implicated in those structures of power but just can we have a moment of like of romantic heroism on behalf of uh, of the critic <laughs> i mean yeah i mean i've i hope i've never sounded like, you know, I think that one of the things that talking about popular culture and criticism allows us to do is talk about sort of broader social meanings, but the importance of aesthetic experience to us as individuals always has to be balanced off against that. And and the other thing I want to, I think when we're talking about Pitchfork that's important to pay tribute here, is also the the arguments, it's the fights. You know, the when Pitchfork was at its most contentious, you know, I wouldn't say in the in most recent years, but, you know, in the late 2000s, early tw- 2010s, that was, you know, people loved to hate it. I had a musician say to me, who I ran into on the street uh, this week, say, say, for me, it's like Margaret Thatcher died, you know? Mm. And, and you know, there's that bitterness about those times when Pitchfork could make or break people. But, like, the, the sense that happens when people are can get passionately angry at a critical outlet and passionately moved by it. All of those things are a sense of importance and a sense of, of the thing counting. And, and I don't think you ever, you know, as much as I've advocated against the sort of gratuitously mean review and mm-hmm. the, especially the gratuitously mean review that is more aimed at insulting the imagined listenership of an artist than the artist's work itself. Still at the same time, like, you know, the Pitchfork had a column for a while called Why We Fight. And I think that that's as much as important a part of criticism as anything. And, and Pitchfork's legacy definitely includes that. Yeah. All right. Well, Carl Wilson is the music critic for Slate and a cherished friend of this program, a CFOP. Carl, um, always great to talk to you. Any context, please come back soon. I'd be happy to anytime. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? I am going to endorse a nonfiction book that I just started. I'm only on about chapter four, but I can already tell that it's going to be great. And it's a book that came out last year, 2023, called Blood in the Machine by Brian Merchant. Uh, The subtitle of the book is The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech. 
But the big tech in question is early 19th century technology. It's a book about the Luddites and about the machine breakers of the early 19th century, which was, you know, basically sort of a an anti-industrial revolution um, labor uprising in, in England around beginning around like 1810, 1811. And it's just beautifully told. Brian Merchant is a tech journalist who mainly writes about modern tech. But his research seems to me really, really meticulous. And he's basically going through and following a few different stories, uh, including, this, among others, the story of um, Mary Shelley and Percy Bysshe Shelley, who were, you know, basically sort of meeting and marrying right around this time and writing a lot about revolution and labor, but also telling the stories of a child laborer within um, the, the woolen industry and just various people involved in these Luddite uprisings. And one of the things I've already learned in chapter one of the book is that there was no Ned Ludd, that this figure, Ned Ludd, who, you know, was sort of the, the rallying cry for the Luddites, is a fictional, you know, Robin Hood style figure that they united around. So uh, Blood in the Machine by Brian Merchant, it seems like it's going to be really smart, both about technology uprisings of our times and of the, the Industrial Revolution. Uh, I think you're going to really enjoy that book, Dana. And um... Ah, you've read it? I've like I'm like halfway through it. It's sort of like the, on my pile of stuff I pick up every so often to, to make some progress on. It, it's sort of it's a great antidote to what you learned in like high school about the Luddites. It's very it's it's a great sort of like listen. These people were right. <laughs> mm. You went oh, to a better so high good. school than me if you ever heard that word in high school. But yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the author sort of identifies as a Luddite himself, and it seems like I'm getting the sense that the Luddites are about to have a moment. You know, because we're in such an industrial revolution kind of time ourselves. So um, I think it's the right book for this year. That sounds amazing. I am. I'm literally going to go out and get it today. Um, Jamil, what do you have? I was going to go do, do a movie, but I think, I think I'll do a book. And in the spirit of Dana's recommendation, this book won, it won a big history prize last year. And I don't remember which one, but it is uh, uh, Beverly Gage's book, G-Man, which is a big biography of J. Edgar Hoover. And you may be thinking, what would be so interesting about reading a big biography? And it is big. It's like 800 pages. It is, it is hefty, a big boy. Um, of Jacob Hoover, and that is that the man is utterly fascinating, and and Gage um, gives us gives you not just a chronicle of his life, um, which is incredibly consequential. Jacob Hoover, without question, maybe the single most consequential bureaucrat of the 20th century, um, maybe one of the most consequential American political figures of the 20th century, but also she gives you such a feel for the texture of Washington in the first half of the 20th century, um, what it was like, what the society was in that city, uh, what it, she, this extends back to the 19th century. The first three chapters of the book are basically sort of like a walkthrough of 19th century Washington, DC as Hoover is a, is a, is a native Washingtonian. I think I did not know and whose family had been there since more or less since the beginning of the 19th century. Uh, uh, but it's fascinating. Uh, you know, the book obviously goes into Hoover's relationship with his longtime aide, uh, Clyde Tolson. Uh, and there, in, in, even even in that part of the book, which is it's, an, it's a it's a through line throughout the book so far. I'm like two thirds of the way through. Um, even there, it's like you're also getting a bit of history of queerness in America. Mm. Uh, it's a, it's a phenomenal book. Like it's it's really an accomplishment. So let, let me recommend that if you if you're at all interested in American history, like broadly, um, this is totally worth checking out. Oh my God! I after you two, I'm tempted to make up the title of some new huge doorstop nonfiction book <laughs> that one ought to go you know, has to go immediately into one's bucket list. Um, no, on the contrary, I, that would be overloading the listener <laughs> with book recommendations. You have to do some little tiny meme or something really miniature to I, balance I, I it do, out. I, I was thinking about doing a song. I mean, you know, um, but um, no, I, I, I'm proud of my endorsement. I'm, I, I stick with it. I endorse my endorsement, which is um, it's actually two book reviews. I think one is tends to try to balance out a degree of coldness with a degree of heat when one writes anything, i.e. analytic precision and um, a degree of oracular passion, maybe, for lack of a better word, especially if you're like me, 
left or leftish, um, and you don't want one to overwhelm the other on and on. Um, so I found the kind of wonderful yin and yang in these two reviews. Uh, each one is about the Walter Isaacson, Elon Musk biography, and I admired them both so much I wanted to email and probably will email a fan letter to each of the the, the authors. The first is it won't shock you, the more sort of sober and slightly drier of the two appears in the New York Review of Books, but it's not overly sober or dry at all. It's a, it's a um, exemplary piece of writing by Ben Tarnoff, who himself works in the tech industry, therefore knows it from the inside, but writes about it with as much sort of slashing polemical vigor as anybody. Um, and his piece is called Ultra Hardcore, and it gets just at the essence of nerd, like why the world increasingly resembles a nerd's revenge fantasy through the figure of Musk and Isaacson's biography. The far more oracular and, and openly polemical one is in The Point magazine by um, someone who, whose byline, I don't know, but I'm, I'm now trying to read more by him. Sam Chris, it's spelled K-R-I-S-S. He strikes me as being in the um, Tom Skoka model of a kind of polymathic ability to bring wildly far-flung things together into a single strand of argument and then wield that into a weapon and, and pummel the chosen target uh, into submission. And um, his opening line, from the opening line, he just grabs you. I know that I'm supposed to hate Elon Musk. And uh, he, in fact, ends up paying very little relative attention to Musk and going after Isaacson as like the chief plutocrat lickspittle of America in ways that are just so savage and so funny. Uh, and that one is called Very Ordinary Men, uh, Elon Musk and the Court Biographer. So we'll link to both of those, but they both absolutely delighted and instructed me. A highly recommended Mel, thank you so much for coming on the show. It is always a huge, huge pleasure, and I wish it happened more frequently, but uh, let's try to have you back soon. Always happy to be here. The pleasure is mine. Excellent. And uh, Dana, another fun one in the books here. Yep. Notching on the belt. Yeah, that was a nice one. Um, all right. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com our introductory music is by the composer nicholas bertel our production assistant is kat hong our producer is cameron drews for jamel Bowie and dana stevens i'm stephen metcalf thank you so much for joining us we will see you soon